Welcome to another information session from the California Special Needs Law Group. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and I have an 18, well, almost 18-year-old son with autism. If you have a child with special needs such as autism, you may quickly start hearing about Applied Behavioral Analysis, or ABA, and even Verbal Behavior, VB, as therapies that are helpful to children. Today, I talk with Dr. Denise Ekman. She's the president and executive director of Creative Behavior Interventions. We discuss an overview of what ABA is and which types of children and even adults benefit from this type of intervention. We go a little deep, and by the end of this show, you will have a functional understanding of behaviors, their antecedents, and a breakdown of different types of communication we find in language. If you listen carefully, you may be able to discuss man's, tax, interverbal, and echoic communication. Interesting fact, Forbes lists ABA therapists as one of the most rewarding jobs. Hat tip to Dr. Ekman for pointing that out. Okay, enjoy the program. Dr. Denise Ekman, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So we have some interesting things to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about ABA, Applied Behavioral Analysis, and VBA, right? Verbal Behavioral Analysis, or Verbal Behavior, basically. Can you explain to us, just for those that are completely new to it, uh, what is ABA? Well, ABA stands for Applied Behavior Analysis, and in essence, it's the use of scientific principles of learning and motivation to teach effectively so that we can bring about socially significant, meaningful, and positive change to our clients. Um, There are decades of research in the field of ABA, and when we use these research techniques, um, our goal is to reduce behaviors that are harmful or interfere with learning, um, while at the same time, we can teach new and useful replacement skills or other skills to be able to eventually function independently in life. So typically when we are teaching skills, um, we want to, you know, typically break down those, those tasks into smaller steps Mm -hmm. and using techniques, using techniques such as positive reinforcement, shaping, you know, providing consequences, we can, um, uh, teach these behaviors, um, to independence. Okay. So if I'm a parent, let's say I have a child with autism, uh, he or she is younger and I listen to this and I say, wow, that sounds great. Okay. So what would it look like as a parent? What would I see? Well, I mean, typically we would look at, um, what are the, what are the behaviors that are interfering with learning or could be harmful? So some of our kids may engage in tantrum behaviors, may mm-hmm. engage in self-injurious behaviors, may be non-compliant, you know, may be eloping or running off. So we want to really look at what these maladaptive behaviors are, analyze those to um, to determine or hypothesize what's the function or the reason for those behaviors. Okay. And typically there's, you know, four functions or reasons. It's either to um, uh, escape or avoid something that I don't want to do or a person that, that's there um, to access um, attention from somebody. So, you know, I may not know how to ask you um I may not know how to get your attention because I want you to look at something. So instead of me calling your name, I may throw something at you. Okay. Um, and I'll, and a third function or reason would be to access, you know, items or things that I want. So I see that this kid has an iPad, you know, instead of asking him for it, using my communication skills, I may throw a tantrum instead, you know, as my way of, of communicating that I want that iPad. And then the fourth function is typically, you know, called automatic reinforcement, which just means that it's, 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 um, 
something that's automatically reinforcing to me. I don't need anybody else to provide that kind of reinforcement or that, that thing that I want to me. So for example, we have, you know, clients who may, you know, for example, slap their hands, you know, they're uh-huh. not really necessarily trying to communicate that um, they want something or they want their attention or they're trying to escape something. It's just something that feels good to them. Would you say that's like, and a, so after we uh, just, would you say that's like a stim for basically would that be another way to describe that? Yeah, typically things that are um, hypothesized to um, serve automatic function or, you know, something that feels good to me are typically those stimming behaviors, those uh, stereotypic behaviors such as hand flapping, um, you know, maybe rocking back and forth, lining items up, things like that. Those would be typically um, behaviors that we would, um, you know, hypothesize to serve, you know, being just feeling good for to yourself. Okay. And and so after, you know, really looking at those behaviors and we, um, we would want to kind of come up with interventions and plans to decrease those behaviors. So again, because we're, we identified or hypothesized why we're engaging those behaviors, then we can manipulate the environment so that, um, so that those behaviors um, don't need to occur. So, so for example, if we determine that tantruming occurs because, you know, I'm trying to escape difficult um, or, you know, tasks that I don't want to do, then some things that, you know, the staff or, you know, family or, or teachers can do is to make the, the task easier so that, you know, I won't want to escape it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, while, while we're also doing, um, and then on the other hand, teaching replacement behaviors for that, for that tantrum behavior. So, if my tantrum behavior is because I want to escape or avoid difficult tasks, then instead of doing that, we want to teach the child to ask for a break or to ask for help or to you know, negotiate less time with that. So those, th- those, those uh, go hand in hand in terms of you know, reducing those behaviors that are harmful or interfere with learning at the same time teaching those appropriate alternative skills. So how hard is it, you know, so you, you talked about the, essentially what the four antecedents to why a behavior occurs. How hard is it to figure out which of those four categories it falls into? And is it possible to fall into more than one category? Well, yes, it definitely can fit into more than one category. You know, um, some behaviors could um, serve multifunction. So depending on, um, you know, what the antecedents are. So, um, so for example, like I said, if tantrum behaviors may, may serve it, if you're presented with difficult tasks, then and, you know I engage in tantrum behavior, and that and that task is taken away, and then that may increase my um, my uh, tantrum behavior next time when I'm presented with um, difficult tasks. So that that's that's one example. And then, but however, if like I said again, if I see a child has a or my my, my parent has an iPad, and my parent that parent won't give me the iPad, and I engage mm-hmm. in tantrum behaviors, and then they give me the iPad then that's that tantrum behavior is being reinforced for accessing that um, iPad. So definitely behaviors can serve multiple functions. And that's why it's very important to look at what's the trigger for, um, for these behaviors and then making sure that we apply the appropriate consequence um, so that we're not, um, so that we're not reinforcing those behaviors. Okay. Got it. So, and in terms of how, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I was going to say in terms of how, um, if it's easy to determine these functions, I mean, that's where, you know, the BCBA or behaviorists would come in because they would come and do an assessment and observe, um, 
the child in the different settings um, to to uh, see what those antecedents or what those triggers are and what has been reinforcing those behaviors. And, um, you know, it, it could be easy in terms of, you know, just being able to observe the child in different settings or um, sometimes um, having to actually manipulate the environment to trigger those behaviors to see exactly which, um, what functions those behaviors may, uh, may serve. Okay, so it sounds essentially that ABA, we have a kid, a, a typically developing child would exhibit antecedents that are perhaps more obvious and would communicate in a more typical way, such as saying, I want that iPad. A kid with atypical development would then maybe not have that skill and would use one of these other four things to get want or to c- communicate the, the same thing then that they want it, just not in the same way. And ABA helps to, uh, in a sense, train that child to request in a way that's more typical. How's that sound? Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. You know, so we would, we would teach the appropriate or alternative behaviors to get the same thing that they want, whether it's to escape, whether it's to avoid, whether it's to get something or whether it's to get someone's attention. So that's what we would, um, that's what that would look like. Okay. And what sort of impact does that have on the child once they've now gone and found a more successful way to communicate? Do you see a a sense of relief in the child or what sort of behaviors would they exhibit then? Well, I mean, typically what we would see, and I think just, you know, for any of us, if we found a better and easier way to get what we wanted, you know, I think that, um, you know, we would number one, use it more often. And and then by using it more often, being able to learn more, you know, difficult and, and complex skills, because now we have another way of communicating Um, and then just, you know, like I said, being able to, you know, even for us, you know, if we have an easier and effective way of communicating and getting what we want, then I think that makes us, you know, happier people. It makes us, you know, being, um, being able to be present to learn or to, you know, function independently in life. Okay. So that makes sense. So, and then also it's much better, I know, for the family. So when my son, we understood more clearly what he was wanting and were able to have a replacement therapy, we were all a lot happier. And that certainly just created a better right. environment. Okay, so moving on then to verbal behavior. So, uh, you know, ABA is more from what you describe is just creating replacement therapies or, excuse me, behaviors to get the results that perhaps the child wanted. But now a verbal behavior focuses more on language, which often is commingled with behavioral issues. Can you talk a little bit about what verbal behavior is? Um, sure. Um, so verbal behavior, or VB for short, is really basically the application of ABA, so the application of those scientific principles to the learning of language. So usually when we talk about verbal behavior, we usually think of the language classification that was developed by B.F. Skinner. Um, and so, for example, we may focus on the idea that we don't just teach the name of items, but that we're actually teaching the meaning of the word and all the different functions of that word. Okay. So we want, we want to motivate the child to learn language by connecting words with their purposes and to teach them why we use words and then learn how to use that language to make requests and eventually communicate ideas. Okay. So Skinner's classification that I talked that I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, you know, there's more to it, but the basic four types or operants that he developed um, include man, tact, interverbal, and echoic. So each one serves a different function. So if manding is just another way of saying requesting. 
And that's usually typically the first thing that we want to teach because remember, again, with ADA, we're looking at what's motivating to the child. Um, so if, you know, cookies and water are motivating to the child, we want to teach the child that when you ask for cookies and water, I'm going to give it to you. Okay. And then the next operant is tacting. So that's, you know, in its basic level, labeling or naming items or, you know, commenting to share attention with somebody. So if we saw an airplane in the sky and I looked at you and said airplane, you know, I'm labeling, labeling the airplane, but I'm also drawing your attention to it. And we're kind of sharing that together. Okay. And that's the joint attention that is so important. that seems with the, with uh, kids who have autism, right? Right. And that would be part of the tacting. So, I mean, that's okay. why we want to tack or label things is because we can then use that for joint attention. Ah. Um, and then the third operant is interverbals. And it's basically um, being able to use words or answer questions without having to have that thing in front of you. So that's, I mean, typically that's what conversations are are like, is that we'll be able to talk about things back and forth without having those things in front of us to talk about. Um, for example, you can ask me about my favorite coffee and I can tell you it's Starbucks. I don't have to have Starbucks coffee in front of me to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one is echoic and that's um, just basically echoing or being able to repeat, um, you know, the same word. I say cookie, you say cookie. And so those are um, Skinner's four um, basic, I mean, the four basic um, classifications of language. And we use those to teach um, to teach our kids you know, like the meaning of language and how to use it and what its purposes are. All right. And so if I remember, like echoic was one of the first things, that, at least I heard my son, that, that was pretty common. And then the next thing would be mandy and tact and interverbal are pretty tricky sometimes, right, to do? Right, it can be. So echoic and man usually can occur at the same time because, again, um, it's not very motivating just to repeat a word if you're not going to get anything for it. Right, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, the echoic part is definitely to make sure we have that skill to be able to say the word. But, you know, even if we can't say the word, there's other ways to communicate or mand for a request for what we want, whether it be with sign language, you know, even just verbal approximations, you know, say, you know, um, we're teaching cookie, but my child can only say, Kuh. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to reinforce them for that and use those ADA principles to shape that Kuh sound to cookie eventually. So that, and, and so using that, using the man and the coic to um, teach how to request. Um, so for example, you know, if every time I see a cookie and I say cookie, you give it to me, um, I'm probably learning that that name cookie means cookie for that. So eventually I can show a picture of a cookie to my child and I can ask, what is this? And because he's already had so much exposure to asking for it and getting what he wanted, um, you know, the, 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 the idea is that now he can label that cookie Okay. when I ask what's that cookie. So what's the average amount of weight gain for kids that go through this program with all the cookies? <laughs> if, they, if that's what you're motivated by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It could be a car and we, <laughs> it doesn't have to be something we eat. So what, right. what kind of kids and, uh, so what kind of kids would generally benefit from what ABA or a verbal behavior? What sort of, what's a typical caseload look like? Well, I mean, typically, um, the, uh, the typical, um, uh, treatment for autism, you know, or what they would even consider the gold standard for autism is ABA. So ABA is recognized as a safe and effective treatment for autism. Um, Although 
ABA can be used for many different population ages and disabilities. Oh. Um, you know, we use it, we use it in our everyday lives without even knowing it. So, you know, just a very simple example, when we go to work, you know, we typically get a paycheck every two weeks. So even though we may love our job and we may love what we're doing and, but there are probably days that we don't, um, that paycheck, that positive reinforcement of getting money, or in this case, it'd be delayed positive reinforcement because we're getting it after two weeks, mm-hmm. um, increases the likelihood of us coming to work every day. So with our clients with autism in particular, um, ABA can be effective in teaching them a variety of skills, um, such as you know communication, as we talked about earlier, play skills, academic skills, social skills, daily living skills, self-help, um, vocational skills, um, executive functioning skills. And, um, even, and it's not just with children, because even with teens and adults, you know, we can um, t- use ABA to teach those important life skills, such as you know, how to live independently, um, how to um, you know, function in the work environment, how to function mm-hmm. out in the community. Okay, so I didn't realize that there was such a range of, of people because you know one of the things like I heard was, and I wonder if this is still true that if you have a child with autism, you really better do ABA and VB, and you better do it early because if you wait, it's going to be too late or the benefits won't be as great later on. Is is that still true today? Is the research still say that's or supports that? Um, yeah. So the research does still support that. You know, the earlier their intervention, the more progress and the more effective the um, the program will be. Because again, you're not having, you don't have so many years of the other behaviors that we don't want being reinforced. So uh, you know, okay. we have a child who's two, two and a half, three. You know, there's not that many years of the maladaptive beha- um, behaviors being reinforced over and over and over again compared to someone who's maybe 10 years old. Um, however, that doesn't mean that ABA is not effective for those kids who, um, who uh, you know, who may have that intervention later in life. Um, we may still see, you know, a huge increase in skills, or we may see, you know, skills that may be just enough to, um, to be able to make, you know, the family life a little bit more tolerable or bearable. So it definitely is, a, it, it ranges um, in terms of, um, the effectiveness, but definitely the research shows that early intervention, which, you know, does um, have the best outcomes in terms of um, um, being able to, you know, reach those developmental skills and being able to be as close as possible to their typically um, developing peers. And is this also something that you should be doing 30 hours a week or so? That was what I was told when my son was younger. Is that still the case or has that changed? Um, Again, it really just depends on, um, each child, each child uh, different. Sure. We want to tailor each program to um, to uh, the each each child's you know needs and um, their skill level. So definitely, um, there's you know clients who you know um, 40 hours a week is what's going to be effective for them. And there's going to be some clients who you know maybe 10 or 15. So really depending on um, you know what their skill level is currently and what their needs are and um, what um, you know, what, what, what they need to be able to, um, you know, benefit from the treatment. Okay. Is it hard on a therapist? I mean, I can't imagine, and maybe just rotate therapists doing 30 hours a week with one child doing ABA. Is it something that has to do, be done with multiple therapists or is it possible for one person to do a majority of it? Um, I've seen cases where it's possible for one therapist to, you know, do, um, provide the, you know, 30 to 40 hours, a week of therapy. It's definitely not something that 
um, you know, I would recommend or that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, would be the most effective because number one, we want to be able to make sure that our children can generalize to other people and other sure. settings. So if, if, if my client only works with me and is only able to demonstrate those skills with me, then those skills aren't mastered and those skills aren't known and, and aren't useful because then they can't demonstrate those skills with mom and dad or with another therapist or even with a teacher because eventually we want them to be in class um, or in school or, you know, things like that. So typically what we would usually, especially for a more intensive, comprehensive program, like 30 to 40 hours, we would want, you know, multiple therapists, um, on that team during the week, you know, maybe two to three, sometimes four, just depending on schedules. Okay. I see. That makes sense. So I want to turn and ask a question about you, if you don't mind. I mean, you obviously have a lot of knowledge about this and I hear a lot of passion when you talk about it. What got you interested in this uh, type of work? What, what keeps you going all the time? Um, well, I fell in love with this field about 20 years ago. I was um, graduated from my bachelor's, ready to go to my master's program, and didn't really know what I was going to do. I knew I was going to go into clinical psychology, but I just didn't really know what I wanted to specialize in. I happened to accidentally uh, see an ad for behavioral therapy as a part-time job. Okay. And um, thought, okay, well, you know what? I'll do this. You know, I, I think I had some behavior stuff in college. Um, this definitely wasn't something that was um, was part of the curriculum, and I had no idea what autism was at that point, much less what ABA was. And um, the first couple of families that I worked with, I um, I fell in love. I fell in love with the kids, and I and it was so different and not at all what I even expected to do. Mm-hmm. But once I started working with them, I really saw the difference that it made in their lives and their families' lives and seeing the progress that they made going from, for instance, with the particular families I worked with, you know, from nonverbal kids to, you know, verbal, you know, being able to play, being able to, you know, go out even in the community without, you know, having to um, leave because of, you know, maladaptive behaviors. Right. So I wanted to, you know, be able to continue that work while I was, you know, obtaining my doctorate um, degree. Um, and so uh, I'd started creative behavior interventions. And so I want, like I said, I wanted to be able to continue that work, to work with families, to be able to make, you know, progress with them to, you know, e- particularly for the families that, um, you know, where maybe they were told there was no hope or families who uh. come from low income or families who, who, um, you know, English isn't their first language, who really wasn't, who really weren't given the opportunity to um, learn about what ABA is and how it would benefit their child at an early age. And so, you know, I wanted to be able to, um, to um, you know, be able to provide those services to, you know, those um, underserved populations, as well at the same time being able to train new behaviorists or BCBAs in this field. Um, like I said, when I started, this was something that wasn't um, uh, taught in school. I had no idea what it was, and <laughs> it's exciting for me to be able to um, to bring other people into this field and to see them grow and be able to develop and make a difference in other kids' lives. Yeah, I mean, it's great that you're doing this. This stuff isn't like my wife and I are teachers, so we are in a sense front-loaded on learning these sorts of things. So it sort of made sense. But if had I not had that background and experience, I don't know how as a parent I would be able to really understand how to be helpful with it and how to move forward with it and help on my own as well. Do you find parents struggle a little bit with understanding how it all works as well? 
Um, yes. I mean, some, sometimes, sometimes um, a lot of the principles of ABA and what we're telling parents to do or wh- why, what we're telling them why we're doing things is sometimes counterintuitive. So a lot of ABA um, sessions do include components of parent training um, where the BCBA or the behaviorist or the lead therapist would incorporate the families into sessions as well as teaching them kind of the basic principles of ABA and, you know, understanding the lingo and really understanding why we do what we do. And so with that component, um, typically, you know, we're able to see parents be more on board with the interventions as well as really understanding you know, why they're doing these things and eventually being able to um, apply these um, techniques and skills without um, having to have an ABA therapist in their home anymore. Oh, okay. So, all right, final question then. Uh, what, where do you see things going or what maybe perhaps exciting things do you see in the future in your field? Well, like I said earlier, um, ABA is a, is a pretty new and exciting but growing field. Um, not many people are aware of this field. And then when they do know about it, they're pretty intrigued and, um, you know, want to know more. And it was actually, ABA was ranked in Forbes um, top 10 of the most rewarding jobs. Really? So that's something to say about, it. yeah, that's yeah. something definitely a positive to say about ABA. Um, and, you know, Again, ABA typically is considered the gold standard of treatment for um, children with autism um, with decades of research behind it. And I think I believe probably decades more research ahead of it. Um, What I think is exciting about ABA um, is that um, I think people are starting to understand that ABA's effectiveness can be used and applied to many other populations and not just with those with disabilities. I mean, it could be, you know, um, used for businesses to, you know, to make sure they, uh, you know, have better business practices or how to retain employees, um, things like weight loss or even smoking cessation, or even with, um, you know, working with animals even. And so, you know, I think what we can expect in the future is definitely more research and findings on how to continue to be effective for children with autism, um, but at the same time, really showing how it can be beneficial for um, a broader range of areas. All right, Dr. Denise Heckman, thanks so much for your time today and the work you do with these kids. Thank you so much. You've been listening to an audio information session brought to you by California Special Needs Law Group. It's part of our vision of facilitating a full life for individuals and families with exceptional needs. For more information about us and for further audio interviews as well as written and video, check us out on the web at CS nlg.com. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we'll talk again soon.